Hey everyone, welcome to the January episode of the Nerdalogs Present Your Stories podcast. I hope everybody had a great holiday season. Once again, we're coming at you with a wonderful collection of audience-generated stories for your enjoyment. We've got a good one for you today. You'll hear blogger Sean Boyle from the website LessonsForAvery.com calculate the preciousness of life mathematically. Comedian Andrew Bentley and myself share two love letters to musicians named Bruce, Dickinson and Springsteen, respectively. Additionally, Kevin Reeder and Alex Talavera from the Nerdalogs Troop share stories from previous runs of their shows, including a scathing Amazon review of a book of poetry and a crisis on infinite Alex's. If you want to be a part of the next Your Stories recording, it'll take place on Sunday, January 15th at 8pm, venue to be determined, so check nerdalogs.com for more info. Speaking of shows, it's January in Chicago, and you know what that means. It's time for the Chicago Sketchfest. The Nerdalogs has not one, but two spots in the festival lined up, so come on down to stage 773, that's 1225 West Belmont, on Thursday, January 5th at 8pm, or Thursday, January 12th at 9pm, for some sweet Nerdalogs action. And hey, say hello to myself. Uh, one last note, we've seen the podcast stats and we know you guys are listening to this, so if you've got any feedback you'd like to share, please feel free to email us, that's nerdalogs at gmail.com, or get at us through our Facebook page, which you can access at nerdalogs.com. Do you have any favorite stories or songs? Any suggestions for the show? Do you just want to talk to us or sign up for a slot next month? Please let us know, and thank you very much for listening. Now on with the show. <laughs>
the January, uh, well, I guess it's the December, uh, your stories. Uh, first up, we're going to have a member of the Nerdalogs troop regale us with the tale of something. Uh, Kevin Reeder, please. Uh, please share something with us. Thanks, everybody. Um, anyways, my name is Kevin, and my last name is Reader. It's R-E-A-D-E-R, like the book. It's pretty obvious. Um, and it, it offered, uh, you know, uh, it's pretty easy to poke fun at, um, <laughs> if you can imagine. And I got this one a lot. Hey, I bet you read a lot. <laughs> Clever. Original. <laughs> great. Um, and I did. I did as a kid. I really loved to read at, in, my young, in a young age, you know, between like five and ten. Um, Berenstein Bears, I loved them so much, uh, and and everything was augmented for me. My passion was augmented by the uh, extrinsic reward program uh, here in the state of Illinois called the Book It Program. If anybody doesn't know what the Book It Program was, it was a program put out by uh, Pizza Hut, and if you read a certain amount of books, uh, you could redeem these coupons to go to Pizza Hut and get a personal pan pizza. So I was driven to read by pizza. Great. Uh, definitely good for the health of, of the children. <laughs> um, but I loved it. Um, but eventually it, it, the, the passion for reading kind of waned in me, and I, and I was trying to figure out where that went. And, uh, and, and I figured it out. It, it was probably somewhere around, uh, and this is December, so this is, this is pretty cool, uh, around my uh, Christmas Right, uh, right when I was eight years old, I got a Nintendo, an NES, Nintendo Entertainment System, and I will tell you what, I got addicted to video games as even as a young kid. So I stopped reading. Um, I had a brief, a brief resurgence, resurgence in junior high with the uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. Loved that book series really hard. I uh, read it like four times back to back, um, and it wasn't again until college that I really would would pick up a a book again for for good reasons um but I I didn't like uh fiction it just seemed too distant and not not real enough for me and uh you know so I was doing a lot a lot of academic reading but there wasn't enough passion there um so I turned to poetry and and I started reading in it really really liking it and uh like anybody who reads a lot of poetry uh, they think it's a good idea to write poetry. So I wrote poetry, and I wrote a lot of poetry. And I, I didn't bring it along with me tonight, uh, but I, I assure you, uh, I wrote so much that I decided to publish a book of my, of my own work. And, uh, and some of it was pretty good, and some of it was, was you know, not so great, um, but I was proud of it nonetheless. And uh, and that was really cool. Uh, you can go on Amazon.com and check it out. Um, the thing that is scary about putting your own work out there is that you offer it up to to public to the public. Um, anybody can read it then, which is both exciting and scary. Um, and there's actually one reviewer that I have invited here today uh, uh, to share with you guys his review from Amazon.com. Um, here he is. I'll let him introduce himself and uh, give you this actual review from Amazon.com. Hello. My name is Kay Liston from New York, New York. And uh, I submitted a review for this gentleman's book of poetry. Um, the title is called The Spring That Was. <laughs> and here's my feelings and thoughts on that collection. 
Bar none, the worst book of poetry I have ever read. There is nothing going on with this book. There is no style, nor ability. The book has nothing to offer anyone, save disappointment. Though the product description promises a lot, this boy, this book is void of even the slightest message or thought. I would classify this as bad children's literature if I were being kind. When I first opened the book, I had already read the back of the book and thought to myself, hmm, big talk. Let's see this kid back it up. My immediate skepticism was by no means unfounded. Within the first few minutes of reading it, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I had to actually call my wife to read along with me. The two of us were completely awestruck by the utter lack of substance the book offered. I strongly urge anyone considering buying this book to first purchase a Tom Green movie, as you will find greater substance in one of those banal and thoughtless films than you could hope to glean from this tawdry, no style, no poetry book of poetry. Out. <laughs> so yeah, he flamed me pretty hard. <laughs> I don't know if I deserve that much criticism, uh, but but I, I thought about it a, a long time when I first read the review, and I was like, <laughs> "How do I feel about this? <laughs> do I am I mad at this random person that I don't know who's from who claims he's from New York?" And 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 ultimately, I said no. I, I say thank you, Kay Liston. Thank you for taking a chance on a random poet that you had. I don't even know how you found this book. I have no idea. But, but thank you for taking the time out of your life to sit down and read it. Um, and, uh, and actually, thanks for the royalty check because I went and bought a, a copy of the new Tetris for N64 with it. So thanks, guys. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say you bought some Tom Green movies with that. <laughs> Study up for your next book. I should have. All right, uh, next up we have a returning champ, though he hasn't been on the recording before. Uh, coming to the stage, we got Sean Boyle of the blog Lessons for Avery. These are letters to his heretofore unborn, unconceived, we think, child. <laughs> Although you did just get married, right, Sean? Yeah, so people are already asking if there's, like, an actual baby already. But there is not. Only a mental baby. So, don't don't panic. All right. The world's okay for now. Um, thank you, Eric. This uh this post is titled "Significant Math." I figured it fits nerdologs. Math is pretty nerdy, although I suck at it. But I did try doing a little bit of math, and uh, I hope it hope it's correct. If anyone has a problem with the math, you can um, post a very angry review about how stupid I am. So. It starts off, um, Hi Avery, it has been a while since I wrote you, but I've been busy trying to learn about the universe that we live in. It's kind of a strange place, but in time, the oddness of most things living can be understood with the right amount of patience and a pursuit of truth. That being said, I'm excited to witness your childhood as you go on this natural process of discovery in your own terms. Like, I'm curious... What will happen the first time you see a hawk? 
soaring above a distant tree line. <laughs> At first, you may be amazed by the sheer grace of flight. And then the next time, you may wonder, what does it eat and where does it sleep? And finally, the third time, you might ask, what species of hawk is that? <laughs> I believe our curiosity functions exactly like the same evolutionary process that created our kind. I often think of these ideas when people say things like, it's a small world, or what a coincidence. And I think maybe we want to believe in the idea that something, anything, and or everything can be that special. But I must admit, Avery, I don't think it's that special. And the thought of being a father makes me wonder if that will be my own next evolutionary step in my life. For now, let me explain my current day logic on this. You see, the modern human being is at most 200,000 years young. And living in a universe that is probably 14 billion years old, that calculates the significance of our species to being about a 10 millionth of a percentile when compared to the overall existence of the universe. Also, I've been sexually active for about 16 years. So that equals a total 5,680 days of orgasmic existence. Now let's just assume I have managed one and a half orgasms a day in that period. That then equals 8,760 orgasms. I demand a round of applause. I try. If we multiply that by 70 million sperm per ejaculation, which is the average for my age range, that's where you come in, my perfect, beautiful, and amazing 1.25 thousandth of a percentile. I suspect this can come off as being dark and cynical, but this math proves an important point. And it's an empowering fact that you have no control over the biological and geological tethers of your existence. And you can always treat these factors as just that, scientific data. Avery, be warned that our culture will trivialize these factors as being significant in of themselves. But the secret they don't want you to know is that you don't actually have to love your biological parents unless they earn it. Who, how, and where you are created is not in your own hands. And I urge you to give credit to those who do the work instead of the ones that figuratively do nothing more than flip a switch. So I'm ready to earn it, Avery. And most importantly, I'm excited for the challenge. It's time for you to transcend being the figment of my imagination and become the next clump of self-aware molecules. And you should be excited, too, because the universe is amazing and mysterious, and it's also your home. The end. Uh, just as a quick footnote, um, this is very much an homage to stepfathers, adopted parents of the like. Um, I had a great stepfather that I had dinner with tonight, and, and I feel very proud to speak that way on behalf of parents. And you know, DNA is bullshit. <laughs> Sean Boyle, everybody, that's at, uh, is that a Blogspot or a Tumblr, Sean? Um, it's LessonsForAvery.com. It is a domain. Tumblr, but I have the URL. Um, and there's a thing where you can ask Avery a question, and I'll playfully think of a comical response. And I have photos, and I try to be a little goofy on the blog. That's legit. LessonsForAvery.com, everybody. Thank you very much, Sean. 
Alright, next up we have one half of the Chicago sketch comedy troupe, Rabbit Rabbit. This is Rabbit! Or Andrew Bentley, sorry, Andrew Bentley. <laughs> Alright, I'm, uh, I'm gonna put on a t-shirt. Oh yeah! yeah. Uh, this is an Iron Maiden t-shirt. Yeah, for those of you on the podcast, uh, if you go to Google and you type in Iron Maiden and Wicker Man, uh, you should get idea of the shirt I'm wearing here. Uh, this shirt was my favorite shirt when I was in 10th grade. Uh, at 10th grade, it may go without saying, uh, was not the year I lost my virginity. Uh, rather, uh, it was the year my battered blue disc man saw a perpetual rotation of Iron Maiden, Megadeth, and Halloween albums. Punctuated by the occasional burnt CD from my LimeWire using friends, which would install some new figure of interest in my ever-expanding pantheon of bombastic leather-clad Europeans. <laughs> Gamma Ray, Hammerfall, Sonata Arctica, Stradivarius, uh, each of these found a place in the soundtrack to my daily school bus commute. Prior to high school, my musical tastes had been more or less non-existent. Basically, Weird Al, Primus, whatever my sister happened to play through the walls of our bedrooms, and some old tapes, mostly musical soundtracks, my mom had thoughtlessly deposited with me years earlier, heedless of the social repercussions for a 13-year-old boy who, unironically, knows all the lyrics to Cats. <laughs> the magical Mr. Mistopheles may be able to make a knife or fork disappear, but he cannot do the same for an A-cup bra. <laughs> and, yet, I, uh, and yet I was destined to take my musical castration one step further, because in 2001, my friend Chris Rory's introduced me to Iron Maiden. I was skeptical at first, but this was Chris Rory's, whose track record included my first exposure to porn, D&D, firearms, and casual arson, all of which turned out to be pretty awesome. So I relented. The album was Brave New World, the first track, Wicker Man. I can't say I was converted on that first song, but the album is 72 minutes long, and by the end, I had been raptured into a new realm of musical appreciation. Now, to remind you all, the competition was not steep. Uh, this was 2001, a year when the list of bands burning up the radio included Crazy Town, Shaggy, Uncle Cracker, Creed, and, according to the internet, Train? <laughs> I, I, I don't know either, but apparently we loved it. Uh, hey, soul sister. <laughs> uh, at, at that point in my life, I owned easily less than 10 CDs. By the end of high school, the number was closer to 200. Overnight, I became a metalhead, a true believer, a jean-clad evangelist diligently hunched over Roxy OCD creator, crafting the perfect mix which would similarly lift the scales from the eyes of my benighted cohorts. <laughs> I had many loves. Iced Earth, with their 24-minute, three-track trilogy, cataloging a blow-by-blow -blow account of the three-day Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, Hammerfall, whose music revolved around the seemingly earnest belief that they were reincarnated Knights Templar, sworn to combat some undefined evil. Megadeth, whose frontman, Dave Mustaine, filled the space between his anti-government screeds with what sounded like the orgasmic grunts of a long-time emphysema patient. Stradivarius, perhaps the only charting band in history to have not one but two members named Timo, and whose adorable grasp of the English language led them to pen the lines, I know your name, you're called Mr. Mean, one thing I found out, you don't know beans. <laughs> 
But throughout it all, my greatest love remained Iron Maiden. Uh, to those of you who know a little something about metal, my preferred school of the genre should by now be obvious. Power metal. If you're not familiar with the term, banish all thoughts of corpse-painted church board earners or whiskey-drenched homoeroticism. <laughs> Hair metal might wear the lipstick, but power metal has the labia. <laughs> let, let me explain. Uh, well, for sure, some of it is po-faced balladry about dragon slaying and evil wizards, but the good stuff is surprisingly familiar material. Love, loss, longing. Much of it dealt with in an introspective and vulnerable way. And then there's the joyful, heartfelt, over-the-top presentation. To tell the truth, it's not that great a leap I made from Andrew Lloyd Webber. Power metal is basically show tunes with more guitar solos, double bass drums, and Scandinavians. Unless the show in question is Mamma Mia, in which case, equal Scandinavians. Uh, the two forms share a love of soaring ballads, upbeat refrains, and theatricality. Uh, power metal's unvarnished torrent of awkward sincerity evokes the traditional conceit of musical theater, escalation to lyricism when the emotional content becomes too great for speech. Rent and Machines of Mental Design by Guardians of Time share all the same existential ruminations on mortality and identity. If you replace the AIDS with an insane CEO trying to achieve immortality by bonding with a self-aware global computer system, the two are practically identical. I can poke all the fun I want at the ridiculous aesthetics of the genre, at its unmarketability, at the way most of their accents destroy the short I sound, universe, helicopter, etc. <laughs> but the fact remains, the music affects me, and with greater significance than their more respectable contemporaries. My musical taste these days is far more diverse, and some of the old classics don't get much play on my iTunes, but I still shiver when I hear the piano from Abandoned, or the final sustain from the end of this chapter. I don't wear my Iron Maiden shirts. I have four. <laughs> anymore. But Bruce Dickinson is still one of my idols. Not just for Iron Maiden, for the other things he's done. For being an Olympic-level fencer, and the author of the children's series Lord Iffy Boat Race, and a licensed 747 pilot who voluntarily flew Lebanese refugees out of the war zone to Cyprus during the 2006 Israel-Hezbollah conflict. Yeah. <laughs> but most of all, for doing what he loved, well after it stopped being cool. For many of these artists, what they do was a laughingstock before they even signed to a label. But they do it anyway, because it means something to them, and it means something to their fans. We're both nerds, but long before that became a common point of pride, they had embraced it. And their music reached something in a 14-year-old who was more interested in songs about Aldous Huxley in the movie Predator than he was in getting laid. So, while I'm about to change out of this shirt, because it's ill-fitting and gaudy, I'm not going to throw it away. And I feel okay saying Iron Maiden's Final Frontier was one of the best new albums I heard last year. Because it was. It's not for everyone, but it's for me. And that's what music's about, right? That and Rum Tum Tugger. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Andrew Bentley, everybody. Andrew Andrew, I've got a present for you, man. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off, so this might get cut. And the fate is moving and the finger points to you It knocks you to your feet So what are you gonna do? You're 
your tongue is frozen Now you've got something to say And the piper at the gates of dawn Is calling you his way You watch the world exploding Every single night Dancing in the sun A newborn in the light Say goodbye to gravity And say goodbye to death And live for every breath Your time will come Your time will come Your time will come Your time will come That's all I feel comfortable doing in that So okay. rock on, dude. I haven't heard the Final Frontier yet. I should give that a listen. Actually, let me. Someone think here. The uh, Kevin uh, earlier yeah. said that uh, he brought up the, the very real point that anyone who reads a lot of poetry writes a lot of poetry, um, and I think the same holds true for people who listen to metal. So if you have some time between now and the next Nerdlogs, and you're willing to do this. Uh, I can get with you for like an afternoon at the next one. I will perform some of the metal songs I wrote yes, when I was yeah. in Tampa. Absolutely. Okay. Awesome. All right, we got some continuity going on here between shows. Um, but coming up next, we have another member of the Nerdlogs who's going to graciously share a story. Uh, Alex Talavera. Hey. Uh, this is this is the Alex Talavera of Earth Prime. Just so you guys know. Yeah. The, uh, it's it's funny that you were talking about uh, embarrassing music that you you still like. I think it's a uh, pretty nice segue because um, my story. Uh, I want to talk about um, quantum physics, uh, but to do that, I have to tell you guys about uh, drug dealers, and <laughs> and to do that, I have to explain that uh, in the late '90s, I was. Uh, really into the West Coast rave scene. Uh, um, uh, I uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know, I have no whatever. Uh, I got I got really into to raving and going to raves, and I, I DJed for a while and all that stuff, and I had uh, big pants and uh, pacifiers and all that shit. Um, anyway, one of the things about raves uh, and kind of like their their virtue is that you you know you go and you you do a lot of drugs and you are super nice and friendly to every single person that you meet you know you just everyone is super outgoing and you shake hands and, and everybody is friends uh, and so because of that uh, by virtue of being part of this culture I ended up being friends with a lot of drug dealers uh, and uh, one way or the other kind of ended up being tangentially. Um, a part of the U.S. Mexico drug trade. Now, for those of you who uh, don't know what it's about or haven't seen The Wire or whatever, uh, it, drug dealing is yeah, you, you know what I'm saying. It's it's a pyramid scheme. It's it's base. I mean, you could basically draw it as a pyramid scheme. At the top, 
of the pyramid, there's really like five dudes, and they are, you know, that's Scarface, and they have uh, pet tigers and shit, and those guys make a lot of money. Uh, and then you go down the pyramid, and at the bottom of the pyramid, there's a thousand dudes, and uh, they don't make much money at all, and everyone is trying to rob and or kill you all the time. Like, that's it. Um, either no one went to the top. Yeah. Uh, in my two-year uh, tenure doing drugs, I was shot at twice, uh, stabbed once. I got in two giant brawls uh, where thankfully no one was stabbed or shot. Um, and uh, I have been uh, robbed at gunpoint, robbed at knife point. I have reverse robbed a dude who robbed a friend of mine. And one time, a guy that I'd just been introduced to uh, from my friend Martha... Uh, robbed everyone I knew, including Martha, but not me. And to this day, I still don't know why. We never figured out like why I was exempt. Uh, he just he robbed everyone and left me alone. Uh, later on, he got thrown out of a moving car on Interstate 10. There was a period of time uh, where I slept with a sawed-off shotgun under my mattress. Uh, because my mother received a death threat that was meant for my brother. Uh, the point of all of this is basically this. Uh, I should be dead. There, there is no reason that I should be sitting here right now telling this story. The odds of me being alive today are statistically negligible. So, uh, with that in mind, who has heard of uh, Schrodinger's cat? Okay. Schrodinger's cat, uh, I'm just going to say it, you guys all raise your hand. Uh, it's, it's a thought experiment in quantum, in, in quantum theory. Basically, it's saying, uh, because of the chaotic order of the universe, the idea is this. You take a cat and you put it in a box, and inside that box there's a, a vial of poison or something. And the poison has a random release trigger, 50-50 odds that it goes off. Uh, and kills the cat or does nothing, right? So you put the cat in there with the poison, you close the lid, and then uh, quantum theory says since you can't predict the outcome until you open the lid and look in there, uh, the cat is both alive and dead at the same time. That's the actual nature of the universe. That shit doesn't make any sense. It's a paradox. They, they put it out there to make you be like, whoa, that's crazy. Uh, but then later on, some guy found a different reading of quantum theory. It basically says like this. Um, you put the cat in the box, you close the lid, you don't know what's going on, the universe splits in two. And now there's two universes. And in one universe, the cat dies, and the other universe, it doesn't. And then whichever universe the cat isn't dead in, I suppose, that's the universe that it goes on to, you know, fuck other cats or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so that's... Crazy shit, right? But that is also the only explanation for my being alive right now. The way I see it, there are a thousand universes where I am dead. D dead is fried fucking chicken. Like, there's a universe where I don't sleep through a drive-by, and so I wake up and get shot in the head. Uh, there's a universe where we're getting robbed, and my friends, instead of shutting up, fuck around, and we all die. There's a universe where I overdose on an Indian reservation in Barstow, California, and my brother has to explain what happened to my mom. An infinity of corpses.
but also uh, an infinity of me's sitting in this room telling the story, and an infinity of you's uh, listening to it and being, whoa, my mind's blown, or fuck this guy, or <laughs> whatever. Um, there's also a universe where I never got into drugs in the first place and don't have this story to tell. There's a universe where the girl that I really loved in Japan but never said anything to, I grow a pair and say something, and maybe I'm still in Japan. There's a universe where that kid that you should have stood up for that one time, but you kept on walking, you turn around and do something, and then later on, he's the best man at your wedding. There's a universe where every choice you didn't make happened, and you don't have the same joy or regret or experience that you do here. And I know that that's a really weird way of looking at the world, of thinking like everything that could happen uh, did happen somewhere. But it gives me uh, purpose and focus here because I should be dead for a thousand fucking reasons. Um, but I'm alive for at least one, right? And until I die, any moment could be that reason. So I'm here telling this story with you guys, and that could be it. So thank you for sharing this moment with me. It's why I am alive. Since we're all talking, well, some of us are talking about music and our, our nerdy music loves, that's, uh, that's going to be my topic for today as well. Uh, last month, if you were here or heard the show, uh, Angela talked about being in love with a guy named Bruce. Uh, she inspired me to relate my own obsession with a guy named Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> uh, though music in many forms is a passion of mine, nothing reaches the height of my fascination with the boss. In fact, I feel so invested in Springsteen that, although I'm a hard-lined atheist, I tell people that going to Bruce concerts is my version of going to church. And I'm not joking. When I stand in a crowd of tens of thousands and experience his music in person, only then can I begin to imagine what religious fanatics feel like when they go to their houses of worship every Sunday. Except that my feeling is more valid because Bruce Springsteen is demonstrably real. But... <laughs> anyway. Uh, the, the extent of my obsession with Bruce is such that, for a time, I even performed as a one-man tribute to Springsteen, which may strike you as funny because I look nothing like him. I also don't sound a lot like him when I sing, so I'd always tell people I'm a Springsteen interpreter, not an impersonator. But that's a really weird way to sell yourself. <laughs> to be fair, no one ever complained, at least to my face. No one ever stiffed me on money. And I think I've played some pretty good shows, but it, you know, it's not a choice. But why do I like The Boss so much? What about his music appeals to me? Uh, I can tell you I wasn't always this way. I'm a pretty late convert to the Church of Bruce. Though I had his greatest hits record in high school, I remember thinking he was a little overrated, that his music was kind of sloppy and his lyrics tend to be overblown. Maybe some of you guys think that now. You're wrong, but that's okay. Uh, but things really started to click for me when I listened to a, a live concert recording. If you know anything about Bruce, you know that his live shows are where it's at. Uh, he's famous for his three-plus-hour marathon sessions, 
uh, with intensity basically unmatched by any other performer in the world of pop and rock. Uh, what really struck me was the gamut of emotions that Springsteen runs in a live setting. There's triumph and, tram- uh, and tragedy, comedy and drama, all emanating from the same powerhouse 10-piece band and its magnanimous singer. Oh, that singer. I think Bruce is the purest expression of a white soul vocalist you will ever get. I've never heard any rock musician sing with his passion. Emo kids have nothing on this guy. <laughs> but a mere appreciation of his performance prowess doesn't explain my true devotion. Uh, for that, i like to defer to comedian and reluctant pundit John Stewart, who praised Springsteen at the 2009 Kennedy Honors uh, Award Ceremony in Washington, D.C. John says, I didn't understand his music for a long time until I began to yearn. For me, that's the key to Bruce. I think it takes a certain type of person to really appreciate the boss, and that's someone who's failed hard but doesn't stop craving and striving for success. Now, I don't know if that describes me, but I like to think it does. And as I get older and things I want begin to disappear, my sympathy and empathy for the characters in Springsteen's songs finally starts to click. I understand that his lyrics aren't actually overwrought. They're precisely sculpted to convey the epic struggle that comprises life. Now to explain what I mean by that, I'm going to defer again to Mr. John Stewart, who said this in the same speech. When you listen to Bruce's music, you aren't a loser. You're a character in an epic poem about losers. Uh, I'm going to suggest that that all the things critics rashly consider overwrought or or too too cheesy are merely musical representations of the stories that we each tell ourselves to make it through every day. I'm sure I'm not telling anyone, I'm not revealing anything amazing here when I say that life is hard. And each of us, as the stars of our own narrative, are challenged with finding ways to make sense of the things we do day in and day out in a way that we find acceptable to ourselves. And what Bruce has tapped into, I think, uh, is that for some people, maybe for most of us, that means making ourselves the hero in an epic struggle against hardship. Now, why do we frame our lives like that? Is it because it's true? No. It's because it's the only choice that we have. When you realize that, When I realized that, I realized why Springsteen has accrued all the accolades he has. All of a sudden, lines like, it ain't no sin to be glad you're alive, aren't some sophomoric rebellion against authority. They're representations of the most basic truths there are to keep us sane. When Spanish Johnny tells his girlfriend, good night, it's all right, Jane, an incident on 57th Street, which is my second favorite song by Bruce, the music plainly tells you it is not all right. But Jane and Johnny have to believe it is, because the truth is too paralyzing. In my favorite song of all time, Thunder Road, Bruce delivers the epic line, I know it's late, but we can make it if we run. To me, that handily sums up basically all of life. Things look bad, and time isn't on your side, but even if it seems hopeless, you've got to try. Now, I realize all of this sounds incredibly melodramatic, and it also sounds like I'm advocating that we lie to ourselves. <laughs> but for me, Bruce has helped illustrate the ancient philosophical concept that truth is mutable. The world is, after all, only what we make of it. And again, that's coming from a hard-lined atheist. And the way Springsteen makes sense of the world just works for me. We are epic heroes. Our lives are epic stories. It is late, but we'll make it if we run. Bruce Springsteen taught me never to stop running. It's what we were born to do. Thank you. (laughs) So, this song choice probably won't shock anyone. Take me now, baby 
Hold me close, try and understand Desire and hunger is the fire I breathe Love is a banquet on which we feed Come on now, try and